so you know it was a nice area people were just going about their daily business they're in eating lunch and uh, so the the bad guy shows up he gets out of a car but what we saw were five other bad guys in a car this did not look good hmm. so the informant in the case went into the restroom to meet this bad guy and they brought cash which was like a typical what we call a buy bust and all you're going to do is flash the money and then everybody comes in and makes the arrest okay so what happens that day um we cannot because we have a body wire so we can hear what's going on and i'm it's in my car and we're, we're listening as to what's going on and you can hear the informant he's being pistol whipped inside of the bathroom in broad oh. daylight and we're telling the guys that are because we had two guys inside of that restaurant we're telling them, hey you know he's definitely getting hit in there Mr. Larry Forletta here on Dr. D's social network. Thanks for joining me, man. Yes. Uh, I guess I should call you Dr. Parker. It's a well-deserved term. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, you have uh, a pretty amazing background as well. Thank you. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, as an investigator, I checked you out also. Oh, nice. And uh, it's, uh, it's really an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I worked pretty hard to get to this level. Um, right. I think like anybody who accomplishes, you know, things that other people think are pretty big or you believe are good, you know, it's a lot of hard work goes on behind the scenes, which is what I think attracted me to your profile. I was like, wow, that's a long career in law enforcement. Right. How did you, what was your relationship <clears throat> with law enforcement growing up and that that spurred you into this. Yeah. Well, I ran from the cops a lot. I could tell oh, you. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, you know, I grew up on the streets. Uh, I was a street kid, basically. Mm. And uh, we hung out all together. And, you know, uh, I, I uh, went in a different direction as maybe some of my friends that I grew up with. Um, so, I just saw something later on, you know, like one of my friends used to tell me all the time in my neighborhood, you always play the good guy and I play the bad guy and you always put the handcuffs on me. So, you know, it, it's kind of hard to explain, you know, because, you know, you look at things in life and you say, well, you know, what led me to where I'm at today? And uh, I think a lot of it has to do with growing up, your faith, your family, you know, all those things um, kind of steer you in those directions. So I just knew that at some point that that's the direction that I wanted to go. And uh, from there, I went uh, to college, got my bachelor's degree in law enforcement administration. I had a minor in sociology. I, I think those went hand in hand, to be honest with you, uh, because there's another educational side to that. So uh, for me, that was my, my direction. And my ultimate goal was, you know, once I began to understand where I was, was to go to the federal level. I see. Now, was there a particular area of law enforcement that you felt like pulled towards as you're going through school? No, not really, because, no. uh, you know, in, in uh, so when you go into into that field, you know, you're basically learning a lot of different things, constitutional mm. law, administrative procedures, et cetera. Um, so, you know, that at some point in time, you know, you're going to don a uniform. Um, and then at some point in time, I decided that I no longer wanted to wear a uniform uh, for a variety of reasons. But uh, that's, you know, that's the, the direction I went. And, you know, back in the, in the late 70s, there was a push to recruit college education, college ed education individuals and attract them in, into law enforcement. So that was uh, part of that program going hmm. back into the late 70s. Hmm. What was the, I mean, I'm not, maybe it's obvious, maybe it isn't. What was the pull towards that to have a more formally educated 
officer or people in police force or law enforcement? Well, I, I think what happened, and I think that was the, you know, each generation changes in time and, you know, mm -hmm. things of that nature. So I think they wanted a better educational police force mm -hmm. in dealing with the citizens, in dealing with a lot of issues. Um, and I think that's, that was a direction that that was where it was heading. And I, and I, when you look back today, I mean, there are a lot of people in law enforcement with PhDs like yourself, master's degrees, some have law degrees. So there, there's a variety of, uh, you know, different educational levels. Was that, was there a particular issue <laughs> with lack of education in law enforcement that, you know, uh, the government or federal authorities say, hey, you know, we got an issue here. We need to have a more educated force. Was there a, was that a reason behind that? Um, you know, I really don't know because mm -hmm. there's been so many changes from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, yeah. 90s until we're at today in law enforcement. There could have been some underlying issues there, uh, you know, maybe treating people differently, uh, mm -hmm. maybe treating people in a certain, you know, set of circumstances, uh, because a lot of the, uh, law enforcement when you go back in those days a lot of them were former military people mm. still have a lot of former military people but you know a lot of them were coming out as you know world war ii veterans vietnam veterans so uh you know that's kind of the way you know how society evolved uh through i i, I guess a graduated um to include as many education people as you could so that you would have a better outlook for law enforcement. Uh, what, what were some of the changes? That, what are the changes you've seen the most over the course of your career in law enforcement that were maybe were positive? Well, I, first, first of all, um, you saw the recruiting change. Mm. Um, and I, I think it was to get more uh, minority folks involved in law enforcement. And basically to fit the community where they lived and worked, right. and which was, in, in my estimate, it was a good way to, to move things forward. Uh, no doubt about it, uh, because if you see in today's world, you know, in our major cities, they're led by uh, minority police chiefs. Uh, even when you look at NYPD, uh, when I had, and I'd worked some cases with them when I was a DEA agent, the majority are minority in their police department. So when you begin to see all these things evolve, um, that's how you know that things are changing in, in a good direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to a few people in law enforcement, they've mentioned that same thing. Now, you mentioned about being a DEA agent that were you planning on that? Or did that just start kind of come to you? And you're like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Like, Well, no, I didn't plan on it. Um, yeah. I'll tell you what. I started working, uh, well, when I was, I was, a, when I was with the Maryland state police, I was in uniform, uh, for three years. And then I got recruited by one of the, uh, narcotics, uh, troopers and said, Hey, would you be interested in coming over? This is what we do and all that stuff. So I, yeah, I looked at it as a, as a great challenge. Um, because, you know, even in, uh, even in law enforcement, you get stereotyped, you know, they, they, you know, these guys are looking at these undercover guys with long hair and beards and this and yeah, that. Yeah. All you're doing is, you know, going out and partying and drinking all day and all night and don't even understand all the work that's involved in, in doing that type of work. Uh, it, it's extremely dangerous for one thing. Mm. I mean, even having a uniform on is, is dangerous, but, right. uh, but sometimes, you know, when you're working undercover, like I did, um, you could be mistaken for an informant or you could be mistaken, you know, or them th there's only two things that they looked at you. Mm -hmm. You're either a cop or a snitch. Right. Uh, and that's basically, you know, the danger that is, and you have to be able to think on your feet and be able to answer questions that just come to you naturally. And that, you know, that makes the difference right there. So when I, uh, worked narcotics i knew that man i i really enjoyed doing this and i'm not going to put another uniform on um and wow. so some some friends of mine uh went to dea and talked me into it and you know it was a long process it took me about 18 months to get hired but it was a great career move for me i mean i i woke up going to work every day and loving going to work wow that's interesting and, uh, what, what did you love the most about it every day was a challenge 
Hmm. You know, so, you know, I started out, I worked in Washington, D.C., uh, Baltimore, and then Pittsburgh was my last stop where I retired. And that's, of course, that's where I'm originally from. So every day was a challenge because every day somebody had something different going on uh, in your group. So we would have like, like a group of agents, uh, you know, in one particular group. And then we'd have, you know, five or six, maybe different groups, task forces, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, either we were helping them or they were helping us. And then, you know, then you go to the wiretaps and blah, blah, blah. And it, it just, it was just a challenging, challenging time. What was the, what was the most surprising thing about working in that job? Wow. Uh, I mean, just the, um, just getting out there and, and doing your job. I really? mean, it was, it was challenging when you get out there because, you know, when you're dealing with different people, you don't know. I mean, you got to really thoroughly check them out, you know, whether they sell heroin, crack, cocaine, or whatever now. And of course, unfortunately, fentanyl is just yeah. annihilating our, mm. our kids in this country. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and when you look at this, you know, there's always been an argument like, you know, the war on drugs is a failure. Mm -hmm. This is a failure. That's a failure. But, you know, it's like, look at, look at when you got your PhD and somebody said to you, Hey, you can't, you're never going to get your PhD or you're yeah. never going to, you're never going to do this. So that, does that mean that you quit? And that's kind of the way I perceive things, hmm. even in the drug business, in the drug world, do we continue to let this poison come into our country and do absolutely nothing about it? Turn a blind eye and let our kids die every day in the streets of this country. That to me is an injustice if we didn't do anything, if we didn't keep pressure up on, you know, like the, some of the foreign entities. Yeah. You could see it every day, you're out in California, but uh, you know, the border is a disaster right now. All the thousands of drugs that are coming through and not to mention everything that, you know, from sex trafficking, yeah. everything else that's going on. And so I like doing these types of shows, your shows, and I've been on a lot of other podcasts and I have my own podcast, yeah. but I like to educate people because when you educate people, they begin to make their own decisions, not what somebody else is telling them of what's actually going on, but with their own eyes and ears as to what's going on. So when you have people educating you, it's just like DEA had a program for schools. Um, we would go out to the schools from, uh, you know, elementary and high school and talk to the kids about drugs, about drug abuse, the problems with it yeah. and all that. And, and to me, I think education is the key to success uh, for anybody. And that's like, uh, you know, why law enforcement all of a sudden changed gears and took the approach of going to education. And I think it pays off in dividends. Um, there's in, in, in the local and state, there's not really any requirements for education, a bachelor's degree, et cetera. Uh, and sometimes, you know, law enforcement is a common sense approach too, mm. but uh, you have to have a bachelor's degree in law enforcement or any type of degree uh, to get into the federal government. So most of the federal agencies like DEA, FBI, and, and on all have those requirements. How much of a, you mentioned about the border and stuff, how much of a uphill battle is it to try to do anything about the flow of drugs across from foreign entities? It's always been a battle. It's been a battle for a long time. Hmm. So you're, you're working against two issues. One is what happens when it comes across from a foreign country into our country. OK, so if that country on the other side is permitting that to take place, now we've got a big problem. Mm. So, you know, DEA is in 70 countries. Uh, so, you know, we know how to work with those countries. Now, you know, when you begin to look at countries like Mexico, it has an in-depth an in look at their own public corruption. There's a lot of corruption in Mexico. You know, I'm going to call it a spade as a spade because sure. that's what it is. And uh, the cartels literally run Mexico. You know, they may deny that they do, but no, nah, it's not true. I can tell you where it has changed. The country of Colombia has changed dramatically because their government was very serious 
about putting the stops to these drug traffickers. Not that it still doesn't exist, but nowhere near is what it once did. Um, because I had a lot of friends and agents that were assigned to, to Colombia. And now they're telling me that Colombia is a safe country as opposed wow. to Mexico. So you, you can see once the government takes a, a step forward and decides to move against their citizens that are providing this poison, that's how you try to resolve it. Interesting. I don't think a lot of people think about it like the both sides of the equation, DEA on both sides. They look at like, what are we doing? Right. Like, why can't well, we control this? You know? Well, it's, well, you look at a porous border and you can't even, we can't stop, you know, unless we have cooperation from those countries, mm -hmm. we're never going to be able to stop what's taking place. Um, we can minimize it to a certain extent. You know, there's, and, and I try to stay from the political stuff. I'm apolitical sure. when it comes to law enforcement. I try to stay out of that stuff. But when you have things that are being taken place, officials, and I say government officials, should listen to the people on the ground by building a wall, by doing this or doing that, because the border patrol is there every day. So they, they know what's going on. Right. There's no, there's no, you know, you can spin it any way you want, right? but you can't spin the truth. That's the issue. That's you, true. You can never spin the truth. And so, you know, what's happening now is that the border patrol is so inundated because I have friends that are, you know, and have information coming out of there. You know, they're so inundated with watching young children that the smugglers are taking advantage of it, which is increasing the level of narcotics coming across the mm. border. Because, you know, there's only so many hours in the day and so much manpower that you can spread out to really go after a real problem. And so, you know, if you believe in open borders, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody with any common sense should. I, I agree. Yeah. But, uh, you know, um, because we, we all have laws and, and, and laws are, are there for a reason and a purpose. And uh, so that's the unfortunate part about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're just using these kids as another means for them to facilitate their illegal activity. Right. That's all this is about. Mm. Um, and it's all about money at the, you know, at the end of the day, it really is. All Seems about like money. it always is. Right. I mean, it always comes yeah. down to that. What do you yeah. make of uh, Mexico? I don't know if they actually finalize this uh, legalizing marijuana and maybe the effect that will have on drugs in their country and I don't know where Mexico's going with that. Um, you know, there's there's a strong argument, and 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 I guess in one sense, like, mm -hmm. well, let's legalize drugs. Let's legalize all drugs. Right. Okay. And let's start with marijuana. Okay. Um, so here in the United States, it's still illegal in most states. Mm -hmm. uh, we've gone to medical marijuana. Now, I do support medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe that's shocking coming from a DEA agent, <laughs> but here's the way I look at it. If I have the medical professionals telling me that this form of THC is helping people with pain or cancer or whatever, then so be it. That's what we do. Um, recreational marijuana. No, I'm against it. Uh, and, and I could go on and on about that argument. But again, I look at the medical professionals and legalization in this country, when you look at it, you know, it didn't work in Amsterdam, it won't work in the United States. Mm. So and then you have, you know, the criminal organizations, uh, like, for example, in Colorado, when they legalized marijuana, well, guess what the cartels were doing in Mexico, they're open their own marijuana stores and laundering their drug money through those marijuana huh. stores. So a lot of people don't know that. No, but that's a But see, that's, again, that's the educational part of telling right. people, hey, you know, you're being misinformed here. You're, you're getting a lot of bad information because, you know, when you look at certain industries and let's go, you know, you look at the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, they poisoned this country. And, you know, when you got uh, the Oxycontins, right. Vicodin and, you know, and how they've been abused. And now, you know, medical marijuana has a different effect on people. So, and, and I've had some, uh, fellow agents that are retired and you know they were taking the pain pills for their problems and they stopped 
and finally tried medical marijuana. And uh, the one individual that I spoke with, I had him on my show and, and he began to say, hey, listen, I was always against any form of legalization of marijuana, except now it's, it's in, in the, you know, the medicinal field. Mm -hmm. So that's why, you know, I kind of looked at the whole thing, seeing people that truly need uh, for their, you know, their, their medication. And when you look at the medical marijuana versus all the pills that have been used to poison this country. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, and, and, and we'll, we'll go back to the old saying, it's all about the money. Right? <laughs> it's all about the money. Follow the money, follow, follow the, the money. money, follow the money, stupid, because that's where it's at. And you've got, now you got big tobacco companies behind the legalization of marijuana, just like the big pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. that spread all the poison around. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think educating the public, as to what is actually taking place, because I know that the majority of public are smart enough to make their own decisions. Right. How does the DA deal with big pharma and that aspect of things? Because it almost seems like a very insidious cycle of pharmacological drugs that are supposed to help people, but right. then become things like Oxycontin that end up becoming this opioid crisis for that. Well, things, things have changed because, you know, Back when I first started with DEA, uh, the pills weren't our priority. Mm. Uh, I mean, we had a big heroin problem going on, uh, like Baltimore, for example, right. where I worked. Um, and so you kind of put that on a back burner. And then the pills started really taking, taking off. Um, and so they started going, in, in my career, we've arrested doctors and pharmacists, and now they're finding these pharmaceutical companies, they're going after them. But, you know, there's a political aspect behind it, too. Now, there were some retired DEA agents that went on the 60 Minutes, whistleblowers, and they talked about how Big Pharma was protected by some congressional people uh, and actually, you know, had DEA stop some investigations. So you can see some of those political, and it's, again, big money, uh, yeah. interfering, you know, with those operations. So yeah, there, there's a big change now. And, and now they're going after, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, the manufacturers, uh, because the system uh, that we have for dispensing drugs is called a closed system, mm. which means it's monitored, you know, by the government, it's audited, you know, so there, there's different checks and balances, uh, you know, that you can look at. And then, you know, when you start to see, for example, some small towns in West Virginia, you know, there's 900 people there and you're seeing tens of thousands of pills being sent there. There's something going on. There's something going on. <laughs> there's something going on. That red flag just popped up. So, wow. yeah, that that's um, so that's kind of where we're at in today's world. You know, what do you think the future of drug enforcement is with, as you said, you talked about legalization of marijuana and it seems like more and more states are legalizing it recreationally or they're mm -hmm. medicinally and uh as the generations change what is the future of drug enforcement with drugs becoming kind of a larger discussion in society sure well let's say we just pushed marijuana off to the side for now okay so we still have a big problem heroin cocaine fentanyl I mean, when you look at those drugs, methamphetamine, mm. I mean, it, it, and it goes on and on. So, you know, we have what they call demand reduction program. And that was really to educate people of trying to get them to understand all these dangers of, of drug abuse. And now you look at drug abuse a little bit different from the medical side of this, that it's being called a medical problem, mm. as opposed to maybe somebody calling, you know, being a drug addict. You know, back in the 70s, when people were shooting up at heroin, they were just looked at as junkies. Yeah. Um, and then you saw the, the shift go into different neighborhoods. And so we changed it to a different term. Um, and so, you know, now there's, you know, drug addiction is a medical issue. But the problem is, you know, we still have to enforce our laws. We still have to force people to get better. They're not going to do it on their own. There's, there's a lot of good stories out there, but that's why, you know, they established drug courts. So let's say, for example, you, you know, you're selling drugs, you get caught, or you have a, an, a substance abuse problem. 
So you go through, a, you know, maybe six months through the drug court. And then once you, you finish that, then your, your record will be expunged and then you'll move on with your life, which to me is a very good concept because a lot of people that are out there, they're not going to change unless you force right. change. And uh, that's, you know, it's just the nature of the beast, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating all the things we don't know that's going on behind the scenes. That's, that's, I'm sure one of the things you love about doing your podcast and meeting people and, and your whole careers, the public often doesn't know what's happening behind them or behind the curtain, but then they make assumptions about things for yeah, them. Yeah, they, well, they make a lot of assumptions and there's also misleading information out there mm. uh, that um, that's created by the news media. Right. Uh, and, you know, and let's face it, you know, even back when I was coming through law enforcement and even where it is today, you know, when you hear that word systemic racism, yeah, I, I think it's a slap in the face uh, to everybody from whatever color you are, whatever ethnic group you're from is a slap in the face. Um, I can tell you DEA has always been on the front burner. We had a well diversified group uh, in our organization. Uh, to this day, it's probably one of the most diversified federal law enforcement agencies in, mm. in the country. Because, you know, in, in the drug business, it comes, it involves everybody. Right. You know, you yeah. know, from any organ, you know, from any country. And I can tell you, I, I've probably arrested, you know, people from every different ethnic origin that you can imagine. Yeah. Because it's not one particular ethnic or racial issue. It's a global issue. Uh, and so, you know, that's the, the nature of that's of true. Yeah. Drugs. drugs affect, you know, so those things, they cross every boundary because people get addicted, no matter what ethnicity they right. are to certain things. So I would imagine you're going to see a large section of people because of that. Every, uh, every person, every ethnic group I've met, you know, we had uh, we had a group of Nigerian traffickers and mm -hmm. operate in D.C., Jamaicans, Italians. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Um, so there's not one segment of society that's excluded. Right. They're, in, they're, they're included, you know. Right. So, and again, we come back to the one word is money. So that's that's what it's all about. How have you seen the like certain states now? It's very little. Uh, maybe not states, sorry, uh, cities that are decriminalizing uh, certain drugs or all drugs in states or states like Oregon that just decriminalized right. psychedelics and are yeah. setting up clinics. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think you have to look at individuals and mm -hmm. see what that individual problem is. Um, if you blanket everybody, I don't know. There could be issues there. Yeah. Uh, are you giving somebody an excuse to do something illegal? Um I think, again, I don't know, decriminalization of marijuana has been going on now for quite a number mm -hmm. of years, yeah. you know, and I'll just go to that and then we'll go to Portland for a minute. Sure. You know, there was a lot of misinformation saying, well, you know, the people that are in federal prison, they're in there because they use marijuana. Listen, we didn't have the time to arrest marijuana users. We were after the big organizations, right? you right. know, and I'm like, where are they coming up with this crap? Right. And I hear this stuff on even on, t in, on TV today. That's, that's, is, that's a bigger lie as, as, you know, as, as other things, right. You know, we, we never would do that. We don't rep DEA never, we don't, don't arrest users. We go after drug traffickers. Right. Uh, and you know, a lot of people that maybe hmm. get caught up, you know, on the local level, you know, they may be a, a drug abuser, whatever it is, and they're breaking into somebody's house or they're robbing somebody. And so, so now they're going to tie those statistics uh, as a user, instead of what the actual crime that was committed. Um, but back to Portland, you know, Portland is a very unique state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even right now, what's going on, it's been going on for a year, they're trying to destroy that city. Seriously. And um, <laughs> I, mean... I, 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 I'm like, what are these leaders? What is wrong with them? What are they thinking? And you know, um, the pure fact is now they're they want to decriminalize everything. Okay, so let's say, you know, if a guy gets caught with uh, some heroin, if it's mm -hmm. a small amount of heroin possession, 
okay, that's going to be a charge anyway, simple possession. Mm -hmm. So that would get them into maybe some kind of rehab and try to help them out of it. Now, if you're talking about 30 or 40 bags of heroin, uh, that's not for personal use. That's for distribution. Right. You know, let's face it. So then you have to look at that. You know, what really gets me is, is that the very communities that some people try to protect, they're ruining them. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I'll tell you this. I worked in West Baltimore. Uh, very dangerous place. Shootings every single day, you know robberies, everything, every day that, you know, that you have to deal with these issues. And I even look back over 30 years ago, and West Baltimore hasn't changed. There's a lot of great people there, good people, but they're caught and they're stuck there where they can't get out. Um, and now, you know, when you talk about defunding the police, who are they going to hurt? They're going to hurt the minority community. Right. That's who they're going to hurt. Yeah. You know, it, 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 and I was, you know, back in 1979, when I was a uniformed state trooper, we had a snowstorm come through Baltimore. And downtown Baltimore, there was an area called Gray, Gay, Gay Street Mall, and most of the business there were minority owned. So here comes the snow, 30 some inches. Baltimore police can't respond because we didn't have SUVs back in those days. So what are they doing? A criminal element comes out and they start looting all those stores destroyed them and destroyed the minority business owners. And that's the same thing that that's happening in today's world. Yeah. You know, when you look at the, you know, all the hardworking people that really worked hard, like you and I are talking mm -hmm. about and uh, their, their whole life goes behind them. They got, it got destroyed in a matter of minutes by criminals. You know, those people aren't protesters. Once they cross that line, no, they're criminals. And I think the majority of Americans recognize that um and you know when you look at portland and they've been dealing with this group called antifa um you know if you don't enforce the law what's that telling those you know right those type of people you got a free reign and yeah. uh unless the unless the mayor or the governor put puts you know their foot on the brake they're going to continue to do this they're going to continue to act the way they're acting because we are traditionally a law and order country yeah. i believe in it and i think the majority of americans believe in it i think a majority of reasonable people believe you you can't let chaos just reign i mean you can't exactly. and a very simple analogy is i mean maybe you know if you're a parent i would hope you do this but you can't allow your kids to just go and do things and not have consequences if they're acting poorly for yeah. that and it's a very real example and any yeah. most people's homes have kids, you just won't let your kids run free and commit right. crimes and do things and act poorly and tear up the schools, you know, and stuff. And, oh, you know, hey, I guess it's okay. No problem. And I was like, you can't well, do I, that, man. Well, I, I, I think uh, I think we've seen that happen. But we do see it happen. Yeah. And, and, there, and there is a big breakdown of the family, of yes. the family structure, um, because, you know, uh, you like myself, I was raised by a single mother. But I had family around me that made sure that I walked that line. Um, and so, you know, you hear this, again, some false stories. Oh, you know, well, it's a one parent household and blah, blah, blah. I'm a, I'm a shining example. And I think you are as well. And a lot of guys that are out there that have been raised by their mothers. Um, I have the most utmost respect for my mother, and I'm sure you do for yours. Mm -hmm. You know, my mother had an eighth grade education. She had to quit school to work in the depression. So her job duties were working in kitchens, cleaning houses, you know, and that's how I came up. But I, I, again, if you don't have that, because I could tell you, I used to see kids at three or four o'clock in the morning running the streets of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, where are they at? Why are these kids out here? You know, and we couldn't do anything because we're working surveillances in certain things. So, you know, we just, I, I'm like shaking my head, Yeah. you know, because I have two children. I would, you know, you know, it's just like anything else. There was a, I don't know where the shooting was made a bit. Oh, I was in Chicago. You know, there's a 13 year old out at two 30 in the morning. My mother would have broke my neck. Yeah. You know, yeah. where are you at? Where are you doing? Who are you with? You know, all that stuff. Yeah. So you see that, that kind of breakdown in our society. And that's why there's, so much 
so many things going on, disrespecting people. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I had a, you know, one thing I learned even in my neighborhood was mostly immigrants, but we always were taught to respect elderly people. Mm -hmm. It it didn't matter what color you were. Yep. Elderly. You have the utmost respect for them, sir. Yes, sir. No, man. Yes, man. That's how I grew up. Yeah. Um, and, and that, you know, some, and, and part of that, I think makes you a better police officer in law enforcement. You grow up like that. You understand people and it's, it's all about common sense. And one key word that I've always taught it was taught by everybody and it's respect, treat people the way you want to be treated. Don't be stupid, but listen, there are stupid cops out here. They've done stupid stuff. And, but it's in every, it's in every job, every aspect of life yeah. that, you know, there's a small percentage of people that do stupid stuff, you know, and when you go back and you look at Minnesota, you know, about almost hundred percent of people in law enforcement said that guy belongs in jail, right? What he did to that man. Yeah. There's no excuse. For no it. doubt. No. Doubt. And, and I put cops in federal prison for being corrupt. Okay. Wow. They don't, they don't, they don't belong in our, in my line of work. There's, there's no room. There's no room for them and they have to be punished, but we want people to understand that the majority of the police officers and law enforcement in this country are good people. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's unfortunately that one uh, individual gives everybody a black eye and a bad reputation. And that kind of supersedes all the hard work and dedication that law enforcement does for this country. Yeah, I, I actually think law enforcement's critical when, you know, there was a whole thing defunding the police. I said, this is this is not the right thing. This is this is an, ex- an extreme point of view. Right. For it. And I understand that, I, you know, you want to have good reform. You want to have people who are sure. respectful and doing the right thing. And there's many ways to do that. But right. to just go to the extreme without really thinking about what that actually means Right. Which is what people do on a lot of issues, regardless, you take it to almost anything. Whenever you jump over the, you know, the, the line and get extreme, it becomes dangerous at that point and almost yes. anything, you know, that's true. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what, what we always look at, you know, that extremism, Yeah. Uh, you know, and extremism is bad. So when you look at political parties, extremists mm-hmm. to the left and extremists to the right are bad. Yes. They're bad for our country. There's, you know, there's, I believe there's got to be somewhere in the middle that people with common sense, and, and it, yeah. really it's common sense. It's I mean, come on. <laughs> see, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, come on, how can you not say there's no problem down the border and you see all these people running across right. the border? I mean, you know, what are the people smoking? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, maybe just, you know, some people don't want to believe certain things. You know, the truth is a tricky thing. Yes. Because it it challenges you to question yourself. People don't like to question themselves. They want to stay in their hole and their lane and never change their mind because changing your mind is is hard to do as bold. It means you have to say, I was not right. And people do not like admitting they're wrong. Sure. Oh, they don't like it at all. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. That's a tough one. <laughs> well, you know, when you look at law enforcement and you look at the reforms that have taken place, mm-hmm. go back 50 years ago and look where law enforcement is today. There's been a tremendous amount of reforms made and the police have adjusted to that. Are there always room for improvement? Absolutely. There's always room for improvement. Education training you know training is the key to success yeah the more you train the better you get and how you deal with people and situations and you know when you're talking about let's go back to defunding the police mm-hmm. you're cutting if you're cutting out that training budget you're doing a disservice right with, without a doubt uh because that training now you're taking away what should be being done every day and yet there's always room for improvement i i don't disagree with that I'm a, a strong proponent of reform, a strong proponent of education. So, you know, and that's the way it kind of works. Yeah, most, most definitely. I mean, I think for people, imagine in whatever job anybody in the audience is in, 
and let's you work in a corporation and you say, well, let's just take out the training for all of our people. Right. In this, I mean, you would not want that. You That's wouldn't right. want that if you're any reputable organization. I like to bring things to people's like where they're at, you know, and it's like, think sure. about it in your life. Like, how would that apply? You wouldn't want that if it was whatever you were doing that required, you know, excellence for that. Sure. And I understand that on this level, it's out there in the public, you know, and people see, you know, force and people dying. It, it's a very visceral reaction for, and particularly with law enforcement, you know, and it's on the news, yeah. you know, most people's daily lives are not on the news. That's right. And people seeing you working in whatever situation you're in, you know? Well, the unfortunate part that the people see are only the bad things that happen yeah. instead of the good things that happen. You know, they don't see the police out there, you know, helping the community right. or bringing groceries to somebody or making sure the kids are going to school or checking on a family and making sure they're okay. They don't see those things and because they're not sellable. You know, you right. can't sell that. You can yeah. sell the bad stuff without a doubt. Uh, and then you get that reaction. So yeah, I, there's, there's so many good things that happen. Uh, and the bad part of it happens in very small amounts. When you look at, you know, there's 800, about 800,000 police in this country, mm. local, state and federal. Okay. So just a local, and, and when you combine all those agencies, you get about 10 million people that get arrested a year. Okay. Now, when you go back to the shooting and incidents, they're less than 1% of that. So now you begin to look at the numbers. So the numbers don't lie. People try to distort them, mm -hmm. but they don't lie. And, you know, one thing that I try to tell people, when you get pulled over by the police, just listen, cooperate. If they're asking for your driver's license, give it to them. Why do you got to argue about it? You know, you have a right to understand why you were pulled over. Your officer should explain it to you. Hey, you know, I pulled you over because you were speeding. You were going X, you know, you're going 50, you know, 75 in a 55 mile hour zone. And, you know, that's kind of how it goes. But when it's, it's, it begins to escalate when people decide to make their own decisions, mm. because your training is telling you when people start to act in those behaviors, there's, there's a strong indicator that something is in there or something bad mm. could happen. So, and that's instincts. So again, I just said, look, cooperate, do what you're supposed to do. At the end of the day, you can go to court and dispute it. That's part of our system. You have a right to dispute the charges against you. Due process. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, due process may not apply to the police. And that's kind of where it really gets right, really gets twisted. And get, yeah. You know, when you go out and try to sway people to make a decision based on your own narrative, then letting the facts and the law speak for themselves. Interesting. You know, you mentioned about instincts. Does Was that something that as a DEA agent was a hugely important aspect of your job? Absolutely. Because if your instincts didn't kick in, that means you could end up dead. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you look at certain things, you know, I'll give you an example. So let's say we, we had a case where um, we were buying uh, drugs from a certain group. And, uh, you know, what was happening is this other group was robbing drug traffickers. So I'm getting ready to transfer to Pittsburgh. It was like one of my last years. Yeah. And I was the senior guy there and the supervisor wasn't around. And I'm telling these guys, don't do anything stupid. I don't want to get involved. I, I got my, I'm ready to go. So it just so happens the day that we're out there on the street, uh, we see, you know, we have, we're, I think it was like, uh, like a Roy Rogers. It was in, uh, mm -hmm. in Columbia, Maryland. Okay. And uh, so, you know, it was a nice area. People were just going about their daily business. They're in eating lunch. And uh, so the, the bad guy shows up, he gets out of a car, but what we saw were five other bad guys in a car. This did not look good. Hmm. So the informant in the case went into the restroom to meet this bad guy and they brought cash, which was like a typical, what we call a buy bust. And all you're going to do is flash the money. And then everybody comes in and makes the arrest. Okay. So what happens that day, um, 
we cannot because we have a body wire so we can hear what's going on and I'm, it's in my car and we're, we're listening as to what's going on and you can hear the informant he's being pistol whipped inside of the bathroom in broad oh. daylight and we're telling the guys that are because we had two guys inside of that restaurant we're telling them, hey you know he's definitely getting hit in there you know be as vigilant as you can because there's people in there so now you have to worry about what's going to happen because what what did happen was one of the guys that were in that car snuck around the backside. nobody saw him go in so while the informant was meeting the person he was supposed to be setting up with another guy snuck in the back and started beating him hmm. so here we are broad daylight he takes this guy uh let's say the bad guy grabs our informant takes him out and has a gun pointed to his head and now you know there's people inside a restaurant so now you know chaos starts so he takes him outside and he's got a gun to his head and he's telling him to open a trunk he wants the money so the two guys that are inside of the restaurant come out now they got their weapons pointed at this guy so now the cavalry's coming to try to get this under control so finally the guy uh the guy leaves or lays on the ground after they convinced him to lay on the ground they secured his weapon okay the three or four other guys are in a car we got on the back of them now this is where it's kind of comical all right so i'm with my partner in the car and uh they pull into the gas station so we're we're going to jump out of the car and try to secure them there yeah well so what happened was when i put my bulletproof vest on I stuck my seatbelt underneath it oh. and threw my vest on. <laughs> I didn't realize that I did it. Okay. So it was, was in a moment of confusion. Yeah. So he jumps out of the car <laughs> and he's yelling, Hey, Larry, come on, come on. Come on, Larry. <laughs> I couldn't get out of the damn car. So I finally escaped out of my own seatbelt. <laughs> and, and we, and we got these guys. So at my going away party, uh, they gave me a little gift with a uh, seatbelt they put together for <laughs> me. <laughs> so when you think something bad happened, and then there's a funny part about it, you know, because, you know, really, when you look at it, in fact, the guy that, that uh, was pistol whipping, he just got released out of the D.C. prison system for mm -hmm. murder, just got out, was on parole Wow. and went right back to it. So, you know, those are the. You look back and you think, man, thank God nothing happened really could have been really bad, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the things that when we talk about instinct, how you perceive things and how you start looking around and making sure that, you know, because obviously we all learn from our mistakes Yeah. and you want to get better at them, which is why training is so important. Yes. Learn from your mistakes. You go and train over those mistakes. And that's how it really works. Most definitely. So I could just, I'm imagining you squirming in your seat. Like, like, like oh, I can't get out. I can't get out. <laughs> hey, this is a serious situation. And you're just, yeah, Come on, Larry, get out. <laughs> it's like the old lady that fell on the floor and I, yeah. fell and I can't get up. Yeah. Well, I just couldn't get out of the damn car. Yeah. You're like trying to get out. I was like, come on, what's going on? Yeah. I got the bulletproof vest on and stuff. I, I just, I'm like, oh my God, you know. Uh, it was it was amazing, but uh, the wow. guys that I work with they never let me forget it. I'm I'm sure they didn't. So how <laughs> how did you uh, transition from all those years working in the field and stuff to um, you retired from this? It seems right. like and how did you deal with that? And one, what did you learn from your time working that you applied to your life after working in law enforcement? Well, that's a very good question uh, because you know we're not really prepared to leave. Mm. You know, they started some programs, um, you know, uh, so what, what, you know, you got to begin to think when you're close to that retirement, you know, what am I going to do with yeah. myself? You know, because you're, you're, you're leaving, you're leaving a different lifestyle. Okay. You know, we were on like the fast and furious. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you go back to driving a, a Volkswagen, you know, <laughs> So, um, I had to decide what I was going to do. Um, but the one thing that I did in, on my job really was that my family always came first. 
Mm. Um, I, I made that my priority with my two children because sometimes kids will get lost in that shuffle yeah. when you, when you work all the time, you know? So, but, um, so I had to decide the direction I was going to go. I still had about five more years to go. I could have stayed till I was 57. I, I, I left at 52, which I thought it was a great age. And I decided that I wanted to go into my own business. And so that's where I went into the private investigation business. I had the skill set from being an investigator for all those years. Now I had to learn something totally different about running a business because private investigation is a business. And so um, after I retired, that's where I decided to go. And in, in reality, it was a big chance because, you know, a lot of guys retire. They go from one law enforcement job to the next. Mm. I'm thinking, nah, that's not me. I'm done. I've had enough. It's yeah. time to move on. Um, but, you know, to this day, you know, a lot of guys do that. I, that was just not for me. Um, I thought that I would find something new, something challenging. And because I didn't have a job lined up, you know, and guys are calling me, hey, are you crazy? You know, you don't have anything lined up. You know, you're it's like I said, you know, you're taking that chance. Yeah. When pump, when somebody says, Hey, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I had people call me up and saying how much they respected what I did because I did take a chance, but you know, and I looked this way, I told them, I said, well, look, we took chances. We risked our lives every day. This is something that's totally different. And so, and that was the direction that I went. I went into the, you know, the private investigation business, you know, I do talks and this and that, and I have my podcast now, but uh, that was my challenge. It was to do something different and how I could help people do and deal with their own issues. You know, whether it's a child custody case, yeah. a missing persons case, you know, a homicide type case or, or whatever, however we could, you know, try to help those families. And, and my last case that I did, um, I worked with law enforcement on the case, they kind of missed the boat in the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, the case was closed. It should have been charged as a homicide case, um, but I stayed on it. The family brought me in and uh, I was able to, to convince them to reopen the case. Uh, and the person's uh, wife got charged with uh, aggravated assault, which should have been charged in the first place uh, and went and is now in jail as we speak. Yeah. So to me, that was one of my, uh, I'd have to say satisfying cases that I've ever done in my almost 15 years in private investigation, because um, I tell you, I lost sleep at night knowing that this person was getting away with murder yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and nothing was happening. Mm. And so uh, in fact, uh, I actually, uh, you know, when you're in business, you're supposed to make money. Uh, in that case, I lost money, but I didn't do it for the money. Yeah, I did it for the family to have justice. And so I stopped, you know, and I said, Look, we gotta, we have to get the police back involved in this case. We're going to be spending our wills. You know, I use my professional connections that I had. Um, and it worked out. And that's one benefit I think that I have over a lot of private investigators is my background of law enforcement, right? But still those relationships that are out there, that, you know, you can pick up the phone or call somebody or, you know, they knew who you worked for or who you worked with. And it's kind of a small world that, you know, somebody mm -hmm. somewhere, whether they're out in LA or San Diego or anywhere. Um, yeah. So that, that's, that's definitely a benefit. Is it ever hard just being a private citizen at this point? Like, and maybe the instincts you have about people and people you meet, do you ever get like in that mode? You're like, okay, I got to turn this off. This isn't, I'm not here. I'm not back in this environment, you know? Yeah, I, it, it took some adjustment, mm -hmm. but I have adjusted now. I'll call myself the regular citizen, <laughs> uh, but those instincts will never stop. Yeah. Um, you know, even in a private sector, private field, there's still instincts out there with people that you deal with. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you still have to use common sense and all that, but, you know, it's no more, um, you know, worried about this or worried about that. I mean, there's some issues that, you know, you deal with on a, on a private side, but it's sure. not, you know, the closest thing that uh, I ever came to being shot was on a drug raid. And, uh, 
you know, I thank my lucky stars. Uh, I'm a firm believer in God uh, because of that, not just because of that, because of my upbringing. Yeah. Uh, and things happen for a reason. And, you know, we, we, I'll give you a quick story on this, but so what happened was we do what they call like a dynamic entry. There's a six member team and we have a ballistic shield and we have other equipment to, to get in somebody's house. But when you're hitting the door, it's six o'clock in the morning. You don't know what's on the other side of that door. And that's how dangerous it is. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you try to minimize even doing search warrants when you can. So in, in this particular case, um, the two individuals that were responsible for bringing the shield didn't bring it. And I said to the supervisor, I said, well, where's the shield? He says, well, I don't know. Ask them. Okay. Where's the shield? Well, we forgot it. Okay. Well, guess what? You guys are in charge here. You're going first through the door, right? If, if you're that stupid right, and you're putting everybody else up front, you go first. So what happens is the one guy, <laughs> one guy grabs the Ram. The other guy grabs the Heligan tool. Now, guess who's first going through the door? Yours truly. Mm. Okay. And, you know, a lot of times when you hit doors, you know, with a sledgehammer or a, a, a ram, sometimes they don't open quick. It mm. may take some banging to get that door open, you know, depending on the type of door. It right. Is. So when you say that God was on your side at that time, he hit the door, one crack, wide open. The guy that was 10 feet from the door, he was on a chair. On a, on a chair up on his hills, he had a sawed off shotgun. And, uh, you know, I could have reacted and killed him. I could have shot him, you know, uh, but my training kicked in and uh, there was no overreaction. Uh, we took him in custody. But if he would have woke up or if he would have been awake, I probably would have been dead. Right. So, you know, and when you begin to look at that, you know, there were more weapons in the house. The guy that we were looking for was not there. They got into a shootout with some New York heroin traffickers. And the one thing about Baltimore, it's a very violent city. And the traffickers, the heroin traffickers, they'd kill you in a minute. There's no, you don't even negotiate. Right. So um, I, you know, I went and sat down after, well, even before that happened, we, we finally found the other guy and there was somebody else holding the weapon on him. He wouldn't put his damn hands up. So I had to run down the steps and convince him to put his hands up. And he had a nine millimeter tucked under his armpit. That's why he wouldn't put his hands up. Yeah. So, and there it goes again, you know, there's the orders that the police are giving and you're still not listening. You know, what does that mean? You know? So in, going back to that. So I, you know, after everything was said and done, you know, I sat there and I broke out in a cold sweat and I'm literally, I'm telling you, my whole body was wet. My pants were soaked Wow. because I just realized what could have happened. And, you know, there was nobody for me to go to and talk to. There was wow. no, you know, there was no deconfliction. Wow. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah. You no know? briefing, like a debrief about that. No, there was none. And uh, the only person I debriefed was my wife. Yeah. You know, we sat there and we looked at each other and knew how serious this was. Yeah. I mean, I had a chance to talk to the supervisor later, but. You know, I probably should have went and got some help. Yeah. But wow. I didn't. What a story. I tell you, uh, Larry, you are a treasure <clears throat> trove of information <laughs> and uh, storytelling and I think honesty. And I really appreciate um, you educating the audience about everything related to this. Really. It's been an honor. It's been my honor. And it's always uh, an honor to, I want to provide the right information yeah. about law enforcement in this country there's too much misleading information right and that's been my goal and that's one of the reasons why i have my own podcast because i like people to understand what they do what we do you know it's not you go out and shoot people up all day right and it's not something that you know when you you go out the door and you plan well i'm just going to go out and shoot people that's not yeah the way it works yeah, most definitely. Well, please let everyone know about your podcast and any links and things that they can check out. Sure. Well, my website is www.fcisllc.com. Uh, my podcast is called Forletta Investigates. Uh, we were on uh, just about every Tuesday. 
our you know our shows are like yours pre-recorded mm-hmm. um and i have a i've had a series of guests on now so i'm calling this my first season uh we, we got about 20 episodes and we're down to a couple so we'll we'll probably pick up back in the fall again but you know we'll have the reruns and things like that i'm, I'm learning a lot about podcasting yeah. you know the edu- the education that we of talked course. about of course this is a whole new education mm-hmm. for me most definitely Larry Forletta, thank you so much for being on. And uh, I'm looking forward for everybody to check this out. It's a really good, good episode and with a great person. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.